E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Mariel Wiga of A Kitchen and Bar, the beverage director in Philadelphia. Hello, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Levy. Nice to have you here. So you grew up in Rochester. That's right. Rochester, New York. Um, But I moved to a suburb of Philadelphia when I was younger. Kept this connection with Rochester. My family's all still there. And my aunt actually had a shop. It was called the Dutch Market. That's sort of where I first got into food. And What was the Dutch Market like? Really small mom and pop type of thing. Uh, She did everything. Tiny little kitchen right off the cafe. I'm saying like 12 seats, maybe the whole place. It was adorable. It was cute. Very quaint. So people would come in and get their Dutch goods and get out. Or they could stay and have a snack. Dutch foods like Hanukkah. It's like a crepe with different toppings, syrup, powdered sugar, whatever you want. She taught me how to make that. So Saichabrocha, which I... Think of like a hot pocket with meat. It's kind of just like a puff pastry with meat inside. Croquettes, um, just all kinds of things. So when I was pretty young, about 12 or so, I became obsessed with the Dutch market and wanted to work there. I begged my dad like when I would visit him. What drew you to it? Why do you think you became interested in it? I think that part of it was this cultural difference. I thought that was really cool and exotic. My grandmother's from Amsterdam and it was a little bit when I'd go to school and be like, oh yeah, you know, I know this other culture, this otherness, and I wanted to be a part of that and learn how to make these unique foods. Got you Um, out of the neighborhood a little bit. For sure. You're like, that's not a crepe. (laughs) Let me tell you what that is. We call it a panakouk. (laughs) I just... Started working there on weekends, summers, growing up. And my aunt, too, she kind of took me under her wing, taught me to cook. She would even leave me in charge as a teenager while she would run errands. So I'd be manning the shop. It could be slow, but it was also very exciting. You know, I was in charge of everything. I'd be cooking. I'd be serving tables. I'd be ringing people out on the cash register. You know, I just got to do whatever I wanted and felt in charge. It's kind of a, a cool responsibility for a, for a kid. 
it really set me up for giving me this idea of maybe this is what I want to do with my life. So where did you go to school? While all these ideas were churning around in my head as a teenager getting ready to go to college, my mom suggested, why don't you go to school for something like this? So I ended up at Cornell at their hotel school for hospitality management. And it was a big shock to the system initially. I, you know, the accounting classes, just all the business side of things was not, I, not what I was expecting, I guess. I thought, oh, I'm just going to learn to cook. and It'll be like talking to your aunt. Yeah, exactly. And it was much different. But it was also an eye-opening experience. Uh, took the wine class, of course, intro to wine. How did you respond to that? I think everyone who passes through Cornell, whether they're in the hotel school or not, takes that class. There were about five or 600 kids in this class. I think it was the largest class on campus. And you would be corralled into the auditorium. Every seat would be filled. Everyone had a little like briefcase of wine glasses that they would bring in. And you just set up your tray and your glasses in the class. And in this auditorium packed with 600 people, it was massive and crazy to look around and seeing all these people. And the professor would be up at the stage, giving his lecture, be passing around these bottles, and it was just an amazing intro to the world of wine. Just, okay, Sauvignon Blanc, around the world, here we go. Tasting just so many wines, about six or seven a class. It was probably what got me first interested in wine on a more serious level, not just as a, a way to drink during class. So what happens after school? I went to Thailand to teach English. So I, I, while I was in college, I concentrated in design. So laying out restaurants, the plans, hotels too. And I really felt passionate about that. I thought that that's the direction I was going to go. Something bigger than 12 seats. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I wasn't ready to jump right in right when I got out of college. I liked Thai food. So I ended up on the other side of the world. That was the reason? That was the reason. I just like, where should I go? If I you'd know. like sauerkraut, it could have been like a whole other. Oh, it would have been a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think I learned a lot about myself while I was in Thailand. I got to teach a lot of different types of students. Oh, yeah? What kind? Well, when I first got there, I was at a monastery taking a training course. And so we were teaching monks and the monks were also in training. They were teenagers. So it was... The, they hadn't learned how to not talk yet? <laughs> yeah, they were being instructed. And it was an interesting challenge too, to be a teacher to people with these special rules. You know, you can't touch monks. So when you'd pass out papers, you'd put it on the floor and slide it to them. Or when they'd come to the board, you'd put the chalk down and they'd grab it. But they were the most polite, generous human beings. And they're 13 years old. It was just, just an incredible experience. Because you're teaching them and they're thinking, what if I'm reincarnated as an English teacher to a monastery? Right. So they right. have like a lot of sympathy for you. For sure. <laughs> and you did some traveling throughout other parts of Asia. Yeah. Did the whole backpacker thing all the way up through Vietnam, Laos. That was my favorite. Super chill. Beautiful. Uh, we went through Cambodia. So mixing in just the culture, the sights, the food. That's why we were there. And then after that, I was ready to leave, but not quite come back 
home to the States. So I ended up in Barcelona for a similar situation. I was also looking to teach. And then I also, just to make ends meet, I worked in this sandwich shop at night. You know, I'd go in at like 8 p.m. and come out at 3 a.m. And I was just making these sandwiches. And our clientele was mostly drunk tourists, honestly. Like a lot of drunk British people would come in. You treat it like monks. You don't touch them. Yeah, no, not interested in touching them. You're just sandwich. Go away. <laughs> when did you come back to the States? I was there for about a year and a half. I would have stayed longer. I love Barcelona. That's like my city. But I felt like it was time to come back to the real world. So I settled in Philly. And, um, and why did you do that? Well, my mom actually lives here. And so it was convenient. I also just love this city. I would come in as a kid into the city and it felt so big and cosmopolitan and there's a lot going on. Um, and I didn't, as a kid, didn't experience it as much. And I was really looking forward to, as an adult, getting in there, seeing all the art we have, all the culture, the, the foods. It was a, this was about five years ago. So the food scene was really exploding too. We had a lot of cool new concepts, a lot of independent restaurants, a lot of BYOs. So I was just really excited to become a part of that or experience it. I didn't really know that I was going to work in restaurants at the time. So I ended up at Tria. Which is in Rittenhouse Square. Right. Rittenhouse Square, right downtown. At the time when I joined, they, they had two cafes, one right in Center City on Rittenhouse Square, and then another one a little further east in a neighborhood called Washington Square West, which at the time was very neighborhoody. It was like they're probably one of the pioneering concepts in that neighborhood. So I think that spot really did a lot for developing that neighborhood, making it more of a, a place where you could go out to eat. Um, it was a little rough before. It was a little rough, yeah. And same for Rittenhouse. You know, it, it was a little rough before, but Tria and a couple other restaurants were starting to pop up in Rittenhouse. And it's just, just as it goes on, it's just... I didn't even know you could fit so many more restaurants there. You know, in the past few years, we've seen Federal Donuts, Abe Fisher, Dizengoff. There's this place right next to us, Bar Bon Bon, next to A Kitchen. I'm also in Rittenhouse Square. Um, well, A Kitchen came up in the last couple of years. So it's just this explosion of restaurants in this neighborhood. It's really cool. And what was Tria like? Tria was intense. They are all by the glass concept. Uh, it's they they focus on wine, beer, and cheese. So it's sort of this trifecta. And service is a huge deal too. They're uh, really passionate about. Well, while we may have a more casual concept, we have high standards. And what drew me to Tria was their education focus. They have an intense staff training, mandatory weekly meetings where we would taste everything. Nothing would be put on the menu without the staff tasting it. And the menu changes frequently. So Michael McCauley was in charge of the wine and, and John Myro for the beer. When they'd be bored or when something new would come in, they just like really excited about it, we're putting this on, and then we would learn about it as a staff. So that was a unique experience. I was coming in thinking, oh, I know a lot about wine. I did this class in college and I just lived in Spain. So I'm experienced. I got this. 
And when I got there, I realized, oh my God, there's a whole world of wine that I don't even know. This is so exciting. And that's one of my favorite things about wine in this industry that you never stop learning. There's always more. I took every opportunity I could to get involved in that learning there. I guess it was in a way tying into what I had been doing, you know, this education abroad. So Tria has a program on Sundays. It's called Sunday School, not religious. They feature a different wine, beer, and cheese that they think is worth exploring. And they give a little blurb, a little educational information about it so you can learn about it. And then it's also the first round is half off so or something like it. So it's a great, easy access point for a lot of people. And it took off like crazy. You hear around town people just saying, oh, you're going to Sunday school? And everyone knows what that means, that they're talking about Tria, which is really cool. So I, while I was there, I wrote the descriptions for those, which is a lot of fun. I would get to research all the wines and beers and cheeses and make it sort of, you know, flashy, but also educational and brief. And I think it helped us push the wine scene forward here in Philly. I think Tria really helped bring in this interest in what's going on out there, all the different wines, all the different beer and cheese too. Do you see a lot of alumni like in other restaurants that you used to work there? Oh, for sure. I, it's almost like Tria was a training grounds for Philadelphia. If I ever see Tria on a resume for uh, someone that I'd like to hire, I immediately want them to come in and stage and see what they have to show us because I know that their wine knowledge and their service standards, you know, are going to fit, or at least I hope they will. But knowing, having been through that process, I know that the training's there. So you ended up working also in retail for a bit. I did, yeah. After, after Tria, I ended up at Moore Brothers. So Greg Moore was actually the sommelier of Lebec Fenn for years, which is an institution here in Philadelphia. Um, and so he opened up a, a wine shop with his brother, David, who's also been in the business for decades. And there's just an endless amount of knowledge there. I was excited to get to tap into that, to, to learn from these people, to sort of just by osmosis almost, like being in the room with them, you just absorb so much of what they know. It's phenomenal. Uh, so after after Moore Brothers I is when I ended up at, at A Kitchen. And how did that happen? Well, I met Tim Queter, who now is at uh, Petrus at Al, another restaurant here in, in the city. And uh, we became friends. And when he left, he was the beverage director at A Kitchen at the time. We both worked together at Moore Brothers. And when he left to open up Petrus, he asked me if I wanted to take over. And I thought... Oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the opportunity. Uh, yes, of course. So you definitely wanted to jump back into restaurants. Yeah, I was, I was eager to. It felt like what I wanted to do and an opportunity to reconnect with guests with food on the table, you know, and make those connections there, have a little more ownership over something, over the list. Yeah, I was really, really excited by the opportunity, but also terrified because when I got there, the list was a lot of producers I had never heard of before. 
a lot of wines I just didn't know. And I thought, how am I going to learn this and pull it off? And tomorrow, you know, I'm on the floor and I'm, I'm the psalm and everyone's looking to me. Um, but I, what'd you do? I, Tim and I are good friends. So he really, um, helped me as a mentor. You know, I could talk to him, send him a text message. Yeah. Yeah. And give me some advice, but also I just read a lot and tasted a lot and, when you're passionate about it, when it's what you want to do, you can't stop reading about it. You can't stop thinking about it. And when you teaching your staff about these wines, it really reinforces it in you why you're doing this. So it came came pretty quickly. What's Tim like? He loves to open up wine and and tell you the story, tell you about it. He's also very important in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia wine scene especially for low intervention wines. More like natural wines. Uh-huh, exactly, yeah. He was one of the people that started bringing them in. Yeah, he really got that going. Um, and then, and and I don't think, there are a few other people involved in that too that have helped bring more natural wines into Philadelphia, but he's definitely a, a key player in, in getting them into our market. So is that why you didn't recognize some of the names on the wine list? Is because they were more in that idiom? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Not so. Um, there were some off the beaten path wines, some some funky stuff that I had, and they're really small producers. Some of them. So wasn't a lot written about them. Exactly. You know, I and I had never encountered wines like Frank Cornelis and the you know Clove Roche Blanche. Um, just a lot of these awesome wines that are kind of iconic in the natural wine world, but I wasn't finding them in the other places that had that I had been. And probably not in the state stores either. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I didn't shop much in the state stores. So what was the reaction from guests? I mean, sometimes those wines can be hard to explain or a little different than what people are expecting. So, Oh, was- for sure. Um, I think that rather than explaining too much, I just like to pour. Um, you know, I will get a feel for what you're looking for. Um, if you tell me you're looking for a Pinot Grigio, you know, I'm going to, um, I don't have a Pinot Grigio on the list, but I'll, I'll find you something that, that hits those notes. You know, I'm going to give you a nice mineral driven, you know, crisp, refreshing white. Maybe it's not going to be even be from Italy, but, um, I'll find something that, that makes you happy and also allows me to sort of tell a story about our program and why, why we care about these wines. You know, I think being where we are in Rittenhouse, a lot of our clientele is more, I don't know how you say it, old school or something, this like traditional diner, you know, and our concept is sort of breaking down those concepts. We we are more family style dining with our menu and our wines are a little bit off the beaten path too. You know, we have we have those classic wines for people that are looking for something like that. We have the Olga Raffaut wines, which are some of my favorites, these beautiful Chinon um, that work really well with our cuisine. But we also have these tiny little producers from California that maybe no one's ever heard of. Amplify Wine, you know, this husband and wife team, they're new to wine, you know, they, and they're, these wines are beautiful and they work really well with our food. So I think, I haven't had too many experiences where I pour something for someone and they say, gross, but, um, you know, it happens. But more often than not, they are just like, 
wow, I can't believe I've never had a chocolate before. This is so delicious. I'll have another bottle. And so what was A Kitchen like when you got there? Um, I started around the same time as the High Street Hospitality Management Group came in to operate the restaurant. So that's um, Ellen Yin of Fork in Old City and Chef Eli Culp. And so it was a it was a perfect timing for me, you know, to be starting when the menu was completely changing and we had direction in the kitchen and this let us cook for you style dining. You know, you sit down, you talk with your server, you talk with the chef and they say, you know, okay, we'll take it from here. And then you're just in their hands. And I love that idea. And we translated that over to wines too, creating pairings of you know, leave it to me. I got this. How adventurous are you feeling? If you want to be in my hands, I would love to show you some of these wines that I'm so proud of to have on our list. We, uh, last night actually, we had a couple that did the let us cook free dinner right at the counter. And, and they're like, Hey, we're on a journey. We're feeling adventurous. We leave it to you. You're the expert. We're here celebrating. So, one of the pairings that was the standout for them was this. So the dish was um, smoked salmon with a little buttermilk and dill oil, sprouted grains. It's sort of a reinterpretation of an everything bagel with lox and cream cheese kind of thing for dinner. I paired it with the Brizzo uh, character, Chenin Blanc. Um, and I really want, I wanted to pick that wine because of the story it told, you know, the, this husband and wife team, which now is a tragic story, but still this, that it was, it's what they do. It's their livelihood. It's not just, they're not, you know, making widgets. They're, they're not just going, clocking into a job and coming out. They are, this is their lifestyle. This is what they do. And they're making a mark on, on their part of the world. And I want to share that with everyone else and this couple just absolutely loved it. They loved the story. They loved the the texture of the wine, the way it worked with the food. So I love that opportunity to just expose people to different wines and foods. So it's not just hospitality. It kind of opens doors to different cultural resonances for you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's probably one of the big draws mm-hmm. to, to kind of smaller producer wines. Yes. My servers joke with me sometimes that I love the husband and wife teams. I kind of didn't even realize it, but when I look at my list, I see so many families making wine together, so many of these husband and wife teams. So as soon as they divorce, it's off the list. Yeah, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work anymore. (laughs) Um, But it's all over the list. And another thing I noticed was that there are a lot of female winemakers on the list too. And Without even realizing that I was doing that, that is something that's important to me, supporting female winemakers, not just because they're women, but it is inspiring to see women in a male-dominated industry really killing it. And you were drawn to those stories. For sure, yeah. One of my first like wine heroes, I'll say, is Ariana Okipinti. I first learned about her in, at Tria, and I was really inspired by what she was doing. She was this young woman making wine and and farming biodynamically, which at the time I didn't know what that meant, but I thought it was cool because she was doing it and just this drive that she had um, and the wines were really delicious too. So 
it for me, her wines are important to have on the list for the story they tell and the personal connection I have with them. So beyond the suitability for the food, which I can see those wines being pretty suitable for a range of foods, mm -hmm. but you'd also like it to have some sort of other story and connection for you. Yeah, I like it to have a story. I like it to be supporting a culture and a place and a family. It sort of ties into this idea of sustainability for me, that it's not just about uh, responsible farming. Sustainability is also about supporting this community, these these people who are making this wine and their livelihood. And sustainability is a concept that's important to our restaurant group in general, you know, in the kitchen too, relationships that we have with our farmers. Um, we're we're a sort of a, a learning restaurant too. You know, we'll we'll take people when they're kind of green and sort of give them opportunities to to learn new things. Both Which in the tree it does too. Right. So yeah. that was familiar for you probably. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of like you've seen that before and you've seen how it can help you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, I feel like if you have the passion and the drive, which you can't teach, you know, so if someone just has to have that, like that's what I'm looking for in a person. And and then I can show you how to crumb a table and how to, you know, pour a bottle of wine. Well, I mean, if it's a lot of crumbs. I mean. <laughs> but does that speak to a younger staff? We have a mix. Um, in the kitchen, we definitely have um, a younger staff. And in the front of the house, we have a we have a mix. We have some really seasoned professionals, and then also some some newbies that we're excited to have on our team. When people see a list of wines that's low intervention and maybe a lot of small producers, and they don't recognize a lot of them, is the response generally tell us what to drink? Like, do they kind of leave it in your hands, like the couple that you described, or is the response more like something else? It's mixed. Um, and that's why I think education of our staff is so important so that they know how to handle a question or if someone's asking for a Chardonnay and we don't have one, how, what, what are they really asking for? What questions do we need to ask them to get to what they want? And I really want to empower the staff to be able to handle those questions just the same way I would. Not making anyone feel stupid or, you know, alienating anyone for for not having what they asked for. Um, and I think when you, when you approach it with that gentleness and that hospitality, you know, that you're in my house and I just want to make you happy kind of thing, find the right thing for the meal tonight, the right wine for you, whether it's what I would drink or not, you know, I think that people are pretty open to taking our suggestions. Not everyone. Some people are like, I said Malbec and that's all I want to drink. And we've got that, you know, we've got that for you. And But I really like the, the journey, the experience that a person can come in and have in our restaurant. And I think ultimately that's why people come back, that they're like, oh, well, last time you poured us this awesome blend. I didn't even know, you know, Malbec could be called Co in the Loire. And that was so unlike any Malbec I had ever had. Take me on another adventure tonight. So you find not just the staff that's open to new things, but you find the customers are generally open to trying new things because that adds value to the experience for them. Yeah, not not everyone, obviously. Some people are very set in their ways, but I'm happy to see it evolving even more, that people are pretty open to new things. And what's the scene like for older wine in Philadelphia in terms of back vintages? I find it kind of hard to 
to come by. When I find older bottles, I really pounce on them. We don't get wines from auction or collectors or anything like that. So we really rely on our distributors. And I've formed some pretty close relationships with the people that I really like to work with. And they know that I'm looking for a certain vintage or you know older wine. They're helpful in that way. So in a market where it's hard to get older vintages, is it advantageous to pour low intervention wines that maybe kind of are more ready younger because they don't have all that oak and all that sulfur? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Are there other market advantages to serving natural wines that you've noticed? Have you said like, oh, that helps us with that issue? I look for wines that are in the like the old world style. So low alcohol and yeah, minimal, no makeup kind of thing. So less oak influence, I guess, Um, because I think these are more food friendly wines. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. We're we're a restaurant. I want to play on what our kitchen is doing by not stealing the focus, but really just complementing that food. Because a lot of people come for that chef, like he's kind of a well-known guy in in Philadelphia. We actually have, um, this is exciting to me. We have people that are starting to come for the wine too. The other night we had a group in from Copenhagen and he flagged me over and was like, I'm from Copenhagen. I like natural wine. We drink a lot of natural wine in Copenhagen. And I Googled natural wine when I got to Philly and your restaurant came up. So I'm here and I'm in your hands. Tell me what to drink. And that was so cool to just know that someone sought us out for this experience. So it's not just becoming a bigger natural wine community in Philadelphia. You feel like it's becoming a bigger natural wine community globally. I think so, yeah, which is also very exciting that we can both geek out over the same wine or just enjoy it like this tastes really good. We don't even have to go into the, you know, nitty gritty of it. Now, would you find wines like that at the state store? You can find some of the wines, but the majority of the wines that we have on our list, you cannot find there, which is good because it compels people to come in and and get them at a restaurant um because otherwise they could buy it for cheaper at the store right and they might be more aware of what the pricing is if right. they bought it at the store because there isn't a wholesale pricing in philadelphia no that's one of those horrible things but right now that's a huge obstacle for us this retail pricing that this this huge extra chunk of cost given to us um you know Essentially, the customer is getting double taxed on the wine when they buy it at the restaurant just because they're... Because you pay tax on it and mm-hmm. then they pay sales tax on it. Exactly. Yeah. And that seems a little unfair and yeah. it drives up the price. And at the same time, if they're buying it at the retail store, the state store, then they're buying it for a set number and they know what that number is. And so that if they see that wine on the, the list, they know exactly what your markup is. Whereas if you're serving wines that aren't on a list, at the state store, then they may not have an idea of what the relative cost is and they may not give you the business about how much expensive or more it is, right? Yeah, that's true. I haven't encountered too many, too much pushback from from people complaining that our wine is too expensive. But your markups are pretty general, I think, when I look at the list compared to other lists in Philadelphia. Yeah, uh, it's important to me to to be gentle with our markups. You know, I want at the end of the day, I want people to drink this wine. I it's not a trophy. It's not just 
there for people to see like, oh, look at all this cool wine, but I could, can't afford that wine. So, you know, I'm not going to buy it. I want people to actually experience these wines and taste them. So if that means that I'm going to take a hit under the current system, I'm, we are willing to do that as a, as a restaurant group. I want you to drink it. I want you to experience this and then say, that was an awesome glass of wine. I'm going to come back for dinner. And I remember that the wine list is really cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to tap into that. It's a fairly small room. Yes. We've got about 40 seats or so in the dining room. Um, and then a nine seat bar, 12 seat uh, chef's counter. So it's a, it's a tight space. So I feel like whether or not people get wine can really affect the revenue of the evening. Yeah, it, it does, you know, um, which is what we tell our servers, you know, this is, this is going to really help your check and, um, and the staff has really gotten behind it. They're so excited to, to sell wine, which I love. <laughs> and when they sell it themselves or when they come get me, oh, these, uh, this table is looking at the list. Can you go talk to them? When I come back and tell them the bin number, oh, what did they get? They're so excited and they want to see the bottle. They want to hear the story behind it so that it goes in their back pocket. They can sell it too. It's really fun. It's, it's, it's a fun way to, to work the floor. But I also feel like, you know, 50 seats total, say, that gives you a lot of time to talk to people a lot of times. Uh-huh. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot, there's some instances, obviously, where you're going to be busy and you're being called in multiple directions, but there's probably a lot of times where you have the time to really talk to someone for five minutes. Oh, definitely. It's, it's a very intimate setting. And um, that's one of the things that I love about the restaurant, that it, you can have a nice chat. And we like to pour our wines table side too. It's an opportunity to, to discuss sort of as they're tasting it for the first time which is cool to get that almost immediate satisfaction reaction. So you can kind of see right away whether they're on this track or not. Yeah. And you're going to adjust it up. Yeah, and it, and it invites that opportunity to tell them a little more about the wine. Oh, well, you know, this is, a, this is grown on these crazy steep slopes. Like, you cannot get a tractor in there. You have to just move in there by hand and pick all those grapes. It is just a painstaking process, and you wouldn't believe... And it, I think it makes the wine a little more personal to them, you know, connecting to it in that way, sort of giving it a second thought, not just this is what's in my glass. What has worked and what hasn't worked in Philly? Like if you had wines that you really liked and that you thought were going to sell well and just didn't happen and vice versa, have you had wines that you're like, huh, didn't realize that was going to be so popular? Yeah, for sure. Uh, some of these more um, atypical and really kind of was that an a kitchen joke <laughs> exactly i throw that one out a lot these wines that are really funky and challenging our perception of a place of a of a classic style of wine for example the cornelessen wines i think they're challenging um they're not for everyone but when and when a guest orders them i definitely have a conversation with them about it but I have been so amazed by how well they are received that people are just blown away by how, how different it is than what they're expecting. And that's another reason we, we give taste. Um, we pour table side, you know, for some of our funkier stuff, give you a chance to, to see, like, oh, yeah, it is for me. Cool. Bring it on. Or you're right. This was not for me. But that is, uh, 
even when someone's like, this is not what I was expecting, they're still usually nine times out of 10, they're game. They're like, let's do it. Um, which I think is fairly progressive here in Philly. And I think that we have a pretty unique experience to offer to people. A fair amount of those kind of wines. Like mm-hmm. you have, what's it, about 400 selections? Yeah, we have 400 bottles on our list. Pretty wide breadth. It's not necessarily focused in any one region. Um, but I'd say that we have, a, we have a lot of old world wines or old world style. Even our American wines have sort of that feel, you know, food friendly wines. And just, I like to explore different regions all over the world. I'm really into island wine right now, Sicily, Canary Islands, that kind of thing. I'm really jiving on that right now, <laughs> the volcanic soil. Yeah, I'm really feeling it. So what's the sommelier scene like? Is it pretty much embracing of these kind of natural wines at this point or where is it at? For sure. Um, so the, over the five years that I've been here, I've really seen this community grow and develop this excitement and passion and more and more sommeliers and wine directors coming onto the scene more and more restaurants embracing that role and also these wines that i like um, which is cool i think that we're a really supportive community um sommeliers going to each other's restaurants uh finding ways to taste together and hopefully move the wine scene forward here in philly so when you look back at the Dutch market and you see, you know, yourself growing up, are there things that you would tell yourself at that time that you know now about how the career worked out? I had no idea that I was going to end up doing wine, but I think it's awesome that I ended up in this field, this this service side of things. I definitely wouldn't have guessed it, but I think that it just happened naturally, the progression I didn't really have a path. I just sort of kind of created it. I liked something. I wanted to be around it. I kept doing it and and it worked out. So for you, you've said that service is important to you. Do you see service as service to the guests, but also service for the wine producers? Do you see it as like a, a two-sided thing? That, oh, oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's really important to me. Um, Definitely servers in our in our restaurant to the guest and creating that experience, but also what we can do to connect with these people, uh, the wine makers that are working hard every day to create this product that we get to use. And I just think about these small producers, their livelihood. Like this is just their this is their passion, you know. This is what they are doing day in and day out, and they're not um, trying, not necessarily just trying to get rich doing this. This is a labor of love. They're, you know, working long, hard hours to produce something that they're proud of. And I am inspired by that. I respect that. And I want to be sort of like the steward, you know, the person that can can show the world what they do and why it's so cool, why it's so hard and why it's not for everyone. And that it's, you know, we may glamorize it here, but it's a whole different, it's a whole different idea than, than what we may think. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the key aspects of, for me, of our wine list of, of just like giving it back to the little guy, helping to keep them going. Cause we just need, we need more of that. We need more of that drive 
that passion. Mary Vega likes to get her hands dirty selling wines that she cares about at A Kitchen and Bar in Philadelphia. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Marielle Vega of A Kitchen and A Bar. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.